Let's open our Bibles to Matthew 25. We made it through last week up to 30. And then this Sunday, we went into quite a bit of detail because this was our text verse on Sunday morning. But we didn't go through it verse by verse last Wednesday. So I'd like to go back and um, finish up the Olivet Discourse, which is going to comprise chapters 24 and 25. I'm going to read just the first three verses, which were our text, and then we'll review just a little bit before we finish it off. When the Son of Man comes in his glory, and all the holy angels with him, then he will sit on the throne of his glory, and all the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate them one from another as a shepherd divides the sheep from the goats. And he will set the sheep on his right hand, but the goats on his left. Now the timing of this, uh, we've been going over this quite a bit. If you go to our first two verses of chapter 26, it tells us that when it, it came to pass when Jesus had finished all of these sayings, and the question here is what sayings? Well, this would be the Olivet Discord, chapter 24 and 25. Now, when he's finishing them, he said, you know that after two days is the Passover and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. So this gives us the timing. The first two verses of chapter 26 um, tells us that when he had finished teaching all these things, that he has basically two days left before, once again, he tells them he's going to be delivered up and be crucified. Now, if you weren't here on Sunday, a very brief overview. Um, I called it the judges, and we basically did a study beginning with the flood and went back to Genesis chapter 6. The Lord said that he saw the thoughts of men, that they were only evil continually. He was grieved that he had made man, and he said he would destroy the earth. So the waters um, were upon the earth for 150 days after 40 days of rain and everything perished except Noah and those that were in the boat with him. That was the first worldwide judgment. The second one that we talked about isn't really a judgment in the sense of a judgment that brought about death but we went to 2 Corinthians 5 and 1 Corinthians 3, and we talked about the judgment seat of Christ. And we called it the Bema Seat Judgment. This is a judgment that has nothing to do with your sins, but it has everything to do with how you're living your Christian life now because the Lord is keeping track. I think I quoted the, the verse Um, Don't let your right hand know what your left hand is doing because uh, uh, your heavenly father who sees in secret will reward you openly. And that's a reference to this judgment. Um, Only born again Christians will be at this place. Um, 2 Corinthians 5 makes it a little confusing because it says you'll be judged for everything, whether good or bad. And I told you that that bad part really threw me off because if all of our sin, and we'll never be put to shame, is never going to be brought up again, how could there be anything bad? The bad is in reference to 
why you do what you do. Jesus said, if you do your good works before men, you have your reward. So in other words, bad motive. And if you have your reward before men, then you won't have it at the Bema seat judgment. It tells us in 1 Corinthians 3 that some people won't have any reward, but yet their soul, <clears throat> their soul will be saved. So everyone at the Bema seat judgment, the second judgment we talked about, are Christians, and um, some invest uh, their life more fully than others. And um, the parable of the talents that we, we went through uh, last week, the one who had, uh, was given five got five more, so he had ten. The one who was given two, he was given two more. And, um, and so it will be. So we shouldn't be thrown when it says that there's going to be anything bad happening to you at the judgment seat of Christ. It's only the amount of reward that will remain um, during the kingdom age. In Revelation, it says that we will rule and reign with him. Revelation chapter five, if you're taking notes, the church is in heaven, and they sing a song. It says, Lord, you've made us kings and priests, and we will rule and reign with you for 1,000 years. So that's the second judgment. The third judgment is the, the text that we're reading right here, and it is the judgment of the Gentiles. If you turn back one page to Matthew chapter 24, it gives us when this judgment take place. Um, Matthew 24, verse 29 says, immediately after the tribulation. Tribulation is yet future. Immediately after that, the days will be darkened and then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in heaven. So when does this judgment take place? Immediately after the tribulation. If you go now back to chapter 25, verse 31, it says, when the Son of Man comes in his glory. Well, question, when does he come in his glory? Answer, exactly 1,290 days, according to Daniel chapter 12, after the abomination of desolation is set up, Daniel 12 says, mark off the days, 1,290, and you have the second coming. But then it says, in the last second to the last verse of Daniel 12, but blessed is he who makes it to the 1,335th day. So you do the math, 1,335 minus 1,290, you come up with 45 days. What is happening here in this judgment of the Gentiles is people will still be alive after the great tribulation. Um, it says in Revelation 13, if you don't take the mark of the beast, you'll be killed. Um, but there will be those who will be hiding out, I'm sure, trying to protect their families. Uh, there will be others, uh, Revelation 14, an angel flies in heaven, says, don't take the mark of the beast, because anybody that takes that mark will be doomed um, for all eternity. So what we're looking at here is evidently a 45-day period of time where there are those who have taken the mark of the beast are still alive. There are those who didn't take the mark of the beast and were believers in Jesus Christ. Uh, they believed the, um, uh, the two witnesses, which I believe were Moses and Elijah. 
And now, before we can enter into this 1,000-year period of time, obviously, only those that are saved can enter in. Now, with that much of a background, the last judgment, we'll continue this, but then... um, after the thousand years, we went to, on Sunday, Revelation chapter 20, and it says, the sea gave up the dead, death and hell gave up the dead, and um, they were all gathered before the great white throne judgment. And now these are all the people that died outside of Christ. And it says, the books were opened, um, and men were judged by the things that were written in the book. So what non-believers don't get right now and what they should be terrified about, um, somebody told me after the first service or maybe the second service on Sunday that um, um, a friend of theirs had just gotten saved that wasn't saved. And the way they got saved is they had a vision of hell. And she, knowing this person, as he's explaining the terror and just how horrifying of an experience it was, did everything in his power to make sure that he got right with the Lord because of the experience that he had. Now, there's a book that was written, here I'm getting sidetracked already, what are the chances of making it through chapter 26? 75 verses, not very good. There was a doctor named Dr. Rawlings who wrote a book called To Hell and Back. He's a cardiologist. His salvation story, his testimony, is that being a cardiologist, he would have patients on the table and some would be resuscitated and come back to life. And probably everybody's here has heard of somebody that had a life after death experience. They see their soul leaving the body and they see this bright light and um, it's always a, a happy clappy type story about heaven. That wasn't the case with Dr. Rawlings. His testimony is people coming back in sheer panic written on their faces, saying, please pray for me. And um, basically the book is testimony after testimony after testimony of people who didn't go to heaven, but people who actually saw uh, the depths of hell and were so terrified that they were pleading with the doctor. He said, People can't make stuff like that up. And it's his conversion story. Um, we're refurbishing the bookstore right now for the Prophecy Conference. That was, that was one that we had uh, that I actually encouraged people to read. I, now that I think about it, I tried to call him one time. Because, you know, unless you talk to a person, you really can't get a feel. But that was many, many years ago. To be honest, I can't remember if I made that connection or not. I know I wanted to. I wanted to talk to him one-on-one just to get a feel for um, his experiences. Uh, The great white throne judgment, every person who is at this judgment, um, it's after the 1,000-year period of time, will be cast into the lake of fire, and that uh, goes on to say, which will be forever and ever and ever. Uh, horrifying experience that the church is afraid to talk about today. And by not warning about these judgments, some are terrifying for the believer, they're rewarding. Uh, You'll never have to fear 
above any sin you've ever committed um, if you're in Christ. There's no condemnation to those who are in Jesus Christ. Romans 8, verse 1. Good place for an amen. And that's good news. But it is a terrifying thought because we all have friends that don't take us seriously. They blow it off. When it's over, it's over. Oh yeah, if I go to hell, man, I'm, I'm, I'm partying with Jimi Hendrix and Janis Joplin. We're just gonna get it on and party, party, party. They don't realize that uh, in outer darkness, you are separated with yourself for all eternity, with your own thoughts. To live with the last thing you remember is the Father sitting on the throne and the books being open. Those will be the last thoughts going through people's heads by themselves for all eternity. And boy, can I get sidetracked on that, but I better not. So the final judgment we talked about was Calvary, and we're gonna be getting into that um, in a couple of weeks. But before we can enter into the millennial reign, let's read verse by verse, picking it up at verse 34 now. People that are still alive, this is that evidently that 45-day period of time where the Lord will separate those who made it through the great tribulation. Those are, uh, verse 34, then the king will say to those on his right hand, come you blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world, for I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you took me in. I think of the Good Samaritan as we read this story. Uh, Samaritans were despised by, by the Jews. And yet every time Jesus talks about a Samaritan in the Bible, he always puts a positive light on it. Um, the woman at the well was a Samaritan. And... Um, the, the good Samaritan, of course, is the one who was going up from Jericho to Jerusalem. A guy was robbed and, and beat up. And it talks about uh, a, a Levite walking by and not helping him. It talks about a Pharisee walking by, wouldn't take care of him. But then comes the Samaritan. And he takes him and he bandages, takes him, and feeds him and bandages him up and takes him to the inn. And he says, look, I gotta get to Jerusalem, but I gotta come back this way. Take care of him. All expenses paid. And um, if he costs uh, any more than I'm giving you right now, well, then I'll, I'll give you that when I make my way back again. And the context of the question is to love your neighbor as yourself. And um, Jesus told that story and then he applied this question. He says, which one of these three loved his neighbor? And they had to say it was a Samaritan that loved his neighbor. So here we're reading, I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. And then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? When did we see you a stranger and take you in or naked and clothe you? Or when did we see you sick or in prison and come to you? And the king will answer and say to them, assuredly I say to you, inasmuch as you did it unto one of the least of these, my brethren, you did it unto me. Now let me just stop and say there's two trains of thought on how people interpret who 
Jesus is talking about here. When he says, to the least of these, my brethren, he could be referring to how they treated the Jews during the great tribulation period. The Antichrist had them, um, went after them. Remember Revelation 12? He tried to get the third that was on the way to Petra and Selah. And when they were protected by the Lord, he went back to make war with the woman. So he has to destroy um, the Jewish people because remember Jesus said, you're not gonna see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And that's what the remnant does. So here's Satan's tactic. It's the only card he's got to play. And that is to destroy all the Jews so they won't do what? Ask the Lord to come back. But they do. And um, it's a whole study within itself. But what I'm pointing out here, um, we like to use this verse um, like the way I just did with the Good Samaritan. But there are those who hold, and I would not argue with them, that what we have in, when the Lord says, the least of these, my brethren, he's actually referring to the Jewish people and how they were treated during the Great Tribulation period. Genesis 12.3 comes into play here. I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse those who curse you. And um, let's pick it up in verse 40. And the king will answer and say to, the, oh, we read that 41, then he will say to those on his left hand, depart from me, you cursed, into everlasting fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger and you did not take me in. Naked, you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison, you didn't visit me. And they will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you. And then he will answer them saying, assuredly I say to you, inasmuch as you did it not to one of the least of these, um, you did it not unto me. And these will go away into everlasting punishment, but the righteous into everlasting life. End of the Olivet Discourse. Now, all of chapter 24 and all of chapter 25 are dealing with, if you go back to 24 verse three, the disciples are finally realizing that the kingdom isn't going to come. And so they now ask questions. If the temple's gonna be destroyed, um, now verse three, as they're on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, tell us, well, when will these things be? And what will be the sign?" of your coming. So we got two things going on here. It's singular. It's not signs, it's sign. What is the sign that we're to look for that we know that you're coming soon? And then, end of the end of the age. Notice there's two questions there. So he begins to tell them that certain events are gonna escalate. Before he gets to the sign, he talks about um, events escalating exponentially when it comes to famine, pestilence, earthquakes, false teachers, and false prophets. There will be an escalation of them in the last days and a falling away. So when I hear that there's a falling away 
in the church today, I'm not surprised, not surprised at all. It's exactly what Paul said to the church in Thessalonica, there would be the apostasy or the falling away before the Antichrist would be revealed. So that doesn't surprise me. But the sign, that would be one sign that you look for, and if you go to chapter 24, verse 32, we have a whole lot of time we spend on explaining why the fig tree is Israel. And the nation, or I'm sorry, the generation, that would witness the regathering of the Jewish people back into the land, Jesus said, would see the fulfillment of all Bible prophecy. Just let that settle in. And um, where we're at today. They have not been in a land since um, 70 AD. Uh, That's Matthew 24, the first two verses. Jesus is prophesying about not one stone being left upon another. Well, that happened in 70 AD when Rome the Romans destroyed the city of Jerusalem. That's, that happened. But then, they, they've been out of the land since then, but oh, about in the 1900s, um, they're called kibbutniks. You've heard of beatniks? Well, these are kibbutniks. And there was, as the Jews began to come back, they lived communally. Um, in the 80s, uh, when we w- would go to Israel, we would purposely take people and show them kibbutz life. Now since the 80s, that's going on you know, 30 years plus, um, the culture of the communal life in Israel has changed a lot. <clears throat> they're still kibbutzes, but they're more privately owned than they were in those days. Um, everybody lived together, every kibbutz was a little bit different. Moshe Dayan, remember the general with the Patch on his eye. Um, he was one of the first um, uh, children born in Israel on a kibbutz on the southwest corner of the Sea of Galilee. And his was an agricultural kibbutz. Um, many of the kibbutzes had turned into tourism kibbutzes. The one down by um, on the other side across from Tiberias in Elah, that's a kibbutz, and um, that's where they serve St. Peter's fish. But there's hotels there, but it's actually a kibbutz that turned into a tourist kibbutz. There's dairy kibbutzes, and every kibbutz has their own certain identity that they were known for. But that's how the land was settled. So as we finish the Olivet Discourse, the sign, what you want to, um, remember as we make it through the discourse is the sign we've witnessed. Israel became a nation again in one day just as foretold in the Bible. Can a nation be born in one day? Answer, yes. May 14th, 1948. Israel became a nation. And the first time in almost 2,000 years. So that's the sign. Well what are you supposed to look for when that happens? then all these other things that I talked about are gonna come to pass. The Antichrist, the abomination of desolation. Most of Matthew 24 is talking about the abomination of desolation and where to go. And the rapture of the church, that is uh, like it was in the days of Noah. Two will be in the field, one be taken, the other one left. And then 
um, the parable of the ten virgins, uh, five that were wise, five that were foolish, in other words, five that were ready, and I believe uh, were born again and, and understood the signs of the times. And yet, it's sad when I think that uh, both mainline Protestantism and mainline Roman Catholicism do not take a literal view of the book of Revelation. They allegorize it or spiritualize it. And yet, it's everything that Matthew 24 is all about, primarily talking about the regathering of the nation of Israel and uh, the rapture of the church in an event called the Abomination of Desolation. So as we end it, now we're in chapter 26. And again, when, when Jesus had finished all these sayings, what sayings? All the things that he taught. Now remember, the next thing it says is he only has two days left. So he gave this very important Bible study two days before the Passover uh, where the Son of Man will be delivered up and there he's going to be crucified. Then the chief priests and the scribes and the elders of the people assembled at the palace of the high priest who was called Caiaphas and they plotted to take Jesus by trickery and to kill him. So it's open what what they want to do. But they said, but not during the feast, lest there be an uproar among the people. They purposely wanted to not let this happen until the Passover was over because one of the problems that, uh, that um, the reason that the Romans were there was to keep the peace at all costs, no uprising. And so they did not want um, this to happen until afterwards. The thing is, <clears throat> Jesus is the fulfillment of the Passover lamb. Passover, of course, um, was the last of the 10 plagues and uh, death would pass over Egypt. It would pass over the house that had blood applied to the doorposts and the lentils. And if the blood was there, then death would pass over. So where where we get the word Passover from. But you had to kill the lamb first. But before you could kill the lamb, you had to bring the lamb in your house and have him there for four days. What for? You guys ever see a little lamb? Pretty cute, right? What do you think, what, what do you think the kids thought after having this cute little adorable lamb in their house, feeding him, petting him, taking care of him for four days, and then saying, okay, now we're going to kill him? What's your reaction at the age of four? What? <laughs> and that's the idea. Um, so Jesus was the Passover lamb and he had to be fulfill this type because it was John the Baptist that says when he introduced Jesus, there he is. There's the lamb of God who's going to take away the sins of the world. John was beheaded, but now seven times in John's gospel, Jesus would say, my hour has not yet come. His first miracle is at Canaan. He turned, he turned the water into wine. And um, you know the story. Mary comes to him and says, you can do something about this. And what did the Lord say? The first of seven times. My hour has not yet come. Well, finally, we get to the place in John's gospel where, where in this part right here, 
And now, when he's in Gethsemane, he's going to say, my hour has come. But it's the seventh time. Now, in verse 6, change of thought, we have, now when Jesus was in Bethany at the house of Simon the leper, a woman came to him having an alabaster flask of very costly fragrant oil and poured it out on his head as he sat at the table. Now I want you to notice this, and um, it might cause a little confusion, but that's where we have four gospels. But when his disciples, notice it's plural, more than one disciple saw it, they were indignant, saying to what purpose is this waste? For this fragrant oil could have been sold for much and given to the poor. Now just hold your figure right there and turn to John chapter 12. I actually had to sit down and think this one through because it threw me a little bit when I compared the two because we just read in, in chapter um, 26 that it's two days before the Passover. But when we start reading here, it says then six days before the Passover. So I thought, well, how could this be the same event? It's, but it's identical. What's, what's going on? Then I went back and read it more carefully in um, chapter 26. And it puts it in the past tense when Jesus was in Bethany, okay, at the house of Simon the leper. Now I'll go to John 12 again. That would have been six days earlier when he was there. When Lazarus, who had been dead, whom he had raised from the dead, they had made his supper. Martha served. Lazarus was one of those who sat at the table with him. And Mary, now we know who the woman is in um, Matthew 26, took a pound of very costly oil of spikenard, anointed the feet of Jesus, and wiped her hair, wiped her feet with her hair, and the house was filled with the fragrance of the oil. Then it says, one of the disciples. Well, Matthew says, disciples, plural. Wherein they were indignant, again, it's plural, but here it's singular. Then one of his disciples, named Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, who would betray him, said, why was this fragrant oil not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? And then he clarifies this, he said, not that he cared for the poor, but because he was a thief and had the money box and he used to take what was in it. Well, now we learn something about Judas that we don't know from any of the, the Gospels. He was on the take. He was the one that um, evidently there was one purse for the disciples. Judas had it, but Judas was taking things out of it. Why? Because he was a thief. And the Lord basically tells all of them to back off. Then he said, um, leave her alone. She has kept this for the day of my burial. For the poor you have with you always, but me you do not always have. Then a great many of the Jews knew that he was there and they came, not for Jesus' sake only, but that they also might see Lazarus whom he had raised from the dead. But the chief priest took counsel that they might also put Lazarus to death. Because of counting him, many of the Jews went away and believed in Jesus. Now let's go back and compare that to what we just read in Matthew's account. Matthew said, they're in Bethany at the house of Simon. And this woman, now we know, is uh, Mary. And 
we find here that in verse eight, his disciples, plural, they, plural, were indignant to what purpose is this waste? Now we know that it was Judas that said that this could be sold. Uh, Doesn't give us detail about Judas being a thief in Matthew's gospel, but it does in John's. But he's basically here, going along with John, say, you guys back off. Why do you trouble the woman? She has done a good work for me. For the poor you have with you always, but me you do not always have. For in pouring this fragrant oil on my body, she did it for my burial. Assuredly, I say to you, wherever this gospel is preached in the whole world, what this woman has done will also be told as a memorial to her. I guess it's happening tonight. Wouldn't you agree? Here we are talking about Mary all these years later for this, um, this deed that she performed. But again, John, John doesn't touch on this. And that's why, again, we need to have a harmony of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. All right, now we go back to Judas. So here, verse 14, then one of the 12 called Judas Iscariot went to the chief priest. I think he was ticked. I think he wanted that money, and um, he didn't get it. The Lord tells him, back off. And so with that, he leaves And he says, what are you guys willing to give me if I deliver Jesus to you? And they counted out to him 30 pieces of silver. So from that time, he sought opportunity to betray him. This is betrayal on the highest level. I can't figure the guy out. I mean, how do you walk with Jesus for three years? You're in the boat when he's walking on the water. You're helping pass out the bread that miraculously appears with five loaves and two fish. He sees the guys lower him down in the city of Capernaum, a guy who couldn't walk, four of his buddies come over, and he um, says to the guy, your sins are forgiven. (laughs) I always laugh at that because that's not why they brought their buddy there. He wanted him to walk because he was on his bed. And he says, your sins are forgiven. He says, I can hear the guy say, that's not why we're here. (laughs) And he said, well, what's easier to say? Take up your bed and walk or your sins are forgiven. Well, it's easier to say your sins are forgiven. Why? How do you know? How do you know if they're forgiven? But then he says, but that you might know that the Son of God has power to forgive sins because sin is the issue, not necessarily the healing. You know that you could get healed and still go to hell? You know that you could experience miracles and divine appointments and whole nine yards and still not be saved? So that you might know that the Son of Man has power to forgive sins. Hey, you, get up, go home, and take your bread with you. Gets up, takes up his bed, and he goes home. What is everybody thinking? That guy could not only heal people, but he can also forgive sins. He forgave that man's sin. And so Judas blows my mind. Seeing all these things, didn't Abraham tell the rich man who was in hell while Abraham was comforted in Abraham's bosom? Well, I realize I'm stuck here, but I got five brothers. Would you send Lazarus back from the dead? 
because they'll believe. If they see somebody raised from the dead, oh, they'll believe. And Abraham says, nope, they got this. And if they won't believe this, then they won't believe if they even see a miracle. What about Judas Iscariot? With Jesus, every day, saw all these mighty works, and yet, when he had an opportunity, um, because he was a thief, um, and he didn't get what he wanted, he goes and he betrays the Lord for 30 pieces of silver. Verse 17. Now on the first day of the Feast of the Unleavened Bread, the disciples came to Jesus saying to them, where do you want us to prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he said, go into the city to a certain man and say to him, the teacher says, my time is at hand. I will keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. Jesus was always inviting himself over to somebody's house for supper. (laughs) And he's doing it again here. He did it with Zacchaeus, and now he's doing it uh, here. So the disciples did as Jesus had directed them, and they prepared the Passover. Now the Passover would have come when evening had come. He sat down with the 12. And as we uh, get into this, uh, I'm going to be talking about the picture that everybody's seen of the Lord's Supper by Da Vinci or whoever painted it. You know, everybody's sitting in a straight row. Um, when, we, when we go to Israel, we've been regularly going to a place called Genesis Land. Is this what it's called, Genesis Land? The camels are? Yeah. And uh, you have to get dressed up in uh, clothes that Abraham would have uh, wore. You get to ride a camel to Abraham's tent. Uh, Eliezer comes out and greets you, talks to you for a little while and says, that, Abraham, they're here. <laughs> And you get off your camel, and then they take you into a tent with this beautiful view of the Judean wilderness, absolutely gorgeous. And, but they sit you down to eat on pillows on the floor. The table is that far off the floor. This would have been more what the Last Supper would have been like. Not the Da Vinci style, where Jesus is in the middle and you got six on one side going this way and six on one side going the other. Um, And we read, uh, let's go back to the Passover. And he said, oh, when the evening come, he sat sat down with the 12. I just wanted you to have a, a more clear picture of what this really would have looked like. And as they were eating, he said, Assuredly, I say to you, one will betray me. And they were exceedingly sorrowful, and each one of them began to say to them, Lord, is it I? Then he answered and said, He who dips his hand with me in the dish will betray me. The Son of Man goes as it is written of him, But woe to the man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been good for that man if he had not been born. Then Judas, who was betraying him, answered and said, Rabbi, is it I? And Jesus said to him, you've said it. Now, before I go on, 
Um, any farther, let me just stop and tell you a personal story on this here. We know from John's gospel, and we might even have it here, we know that, that uh, John was leading on the Lord's breast because it says so. And when this happened, Peter must have been sitting far enough away because he wanted to know who it was. So John, on the left side, leans over and says, Lord, who is it? And we read this in another gospel. And he says, it's the one with whom I take my salsa and my um, tortilla, (laughs) or whatever whatever they are, pita bread, and eat with them. Now Judas would have actually been given the seat of honor, which would have been right next to the Lord. So you have John on this side, and you have Judas on this side. And when we were in, when we went to one of our trips to Israel, we stopped at Rome, and we went to St. Peter's Basilica. And they have this original of the Last Supper, but then they have underneath it who sat where. And on, on the, um, let's see if I've got to remember how it was set up. Oh, they had it right with the first one. On the right, they had Judas Iscariot. And then sitting next to Judas, they said it was John. And after John, it was Peter. We don't know where Peter was sitting. We do know where Judas and John were sitting. And I thought, holy cow, here I am in St. Peter's Basilica and they got the Lord's Supper all wrong. And you know how I know? Because I know my Bible. And I know that John was leaning on his chest and there's no way that John could be leaning on his chest if he's the next one past Judas. You can't do that. And you can't whisper in the Lord's ear that way. So I'm, I'm making a big case of this for all the people that are standing around. This isn't right. This isn't biblical. John's supposed to be here. So whoever painted this picture doesn't know his Bible very well. Peter at this point, let's pick it up, verse 26. And as they were eating, Jesus took bread, blessed it and broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body. Then he took the cup and gave thanks and gave it to them saying, drink from it, all of you. For this is my blood of the new covenant. Now, most of the book of Hebrews is explaining to, if you're writing to the Hebrews, who are you writing to? Jewish people. They have a covenant. And now the Lord is establishing a new covenant that's gonna be based on God's grace and not on the, the law. And the whole book of Hebrews is laying out the difference between the law and grace. In John, the Gospel of John, chapter one, verse 17, it says the law came by Moses, but grace and truth in the new covenant that came by Jesus. And this is the first time he's announcing it. Um, the new covenant, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. Jesus died for the, the whole world, but not everybody is going to receive him as their Lord and Savior. I say to you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now until the day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. And I like verse 30. 
And when they, so the Passover is over, and when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. And I got my notes here tonight. Um, Wouldn't it be wonderful to hear what Jesus sounded like when he sang? He sang. And he sang here after this Passover, and curiosity's got the best of me. I wonder what the Lord's voice sounds like. Isn't it amazing that there's, what, eight billion people on the world? And God has this much space to work with between here and here, between here and here. We each have two eyes, two ears, one mouth, one nose, and he can make each one of you look completely different. You know how hard it is to do that? And then on top of it, he gives each one of you your own personal and unique personality. Every one of you is different from another person. Oh, there might be similarities. You might be able to imitate somebody like Rich Little, but you're still Rich Little. And then he gives everybody a different and unique voice. You pick up the phone, you start talking, and uh, the voice is familiar. You know who you're talking to. Eight billion people, and he can do that all differently. Different personalities, different voices, different uniquenesses. Why are you so important to him? We value things because of their rarity. And you just happen to be one of a kind. And that's why you're special to him. And... um, Boy, did I get sidetracked there. When we would drink it with him in, in our Father's kingdom, oh, the Lord's voice. I wonder what his voice sounds like. He sang that night. And uh, I wonder what the hymn was. I wonder about that one too. What hymn did they sing that night? Then Jesus said to them, all of you will be made to stumble because of me this night, for it is written. Now again, Almost without exception. When people say, oh, you know, you really shouldn't talk about Bible prophecy. You can't teach the Bible in any, almost any chapter without dealing with Bible prophecy. It's gonna happen at least three times because I know we're not gonna get through our study tonight, so let's face it right now. <laughs> uh, here's one of them that is, is going to be fulfilled. All of you will be made to stumble tonight because of me, for it is written. This is going to happen. I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will scatter. Now this is going to happen when they come to arrest him. Oh, Peter will be brave for a minute and he'll take the the ear off the the servant of the high priest. But then the Lord will reach down and pick it up and stick it back on. Jesus' last miracle was handling one of Peter's blunders. But... This had to happen because it was written in Zechariah chapter 13, verse seven. This um, what is going to happen in Gethsemane is a fulfillment of Bible prophecy. But then he says, but after I've been raised, I will go before you into Galilee. Peter answered and said to him, even if all are made to stumble because of you, not me, I will never be made to stumble. And Jesus said, assuredly, I say to you this night, before the rooster crows, you're gonna deny me three times. And I'm sure this set, set Peter back, but he said, even if I have to die with you, 
I will not deny you. So said all the disciples. Um, We're going to go in depth in this on Sunday. Along with the prayer that comes up here, and we'll probably get this far with it. And, um, you know, Peter did deny the Lord. But I think he is 100% sincere in what he's saying right here. Uh, Sunday's, I'll give you the title for Sunday's message. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. And even when we want to do the right thing, Peter was absolutely sincere. Though all these guys would flake out, not me, Lord. I would never let that happen. I believe that he was 100% sincere in saying what he said. But what he doesn't know is that Jesus is also God and knows all things. And it was going to happen. And he, tells, and he lays it out exactly how it's going to happen. Not only are you going to deny me, Pete, but you're going to do it three times. And when you do it the third time, you're going to hear a rooster crow. And the other gospels, um, well, I'm getting ahead of myself. Let's at least make it through uh, setting it up for Sunday, the, um, uh, the three prayers. This is the humanity of the Lord because Jesus was fully God, but he was also fully man. And here we have humanity coming out. When the Lord was allowing Job to be tested by Satan, he said, Job only loves you and serves you because you've blessed him so much. Look at all you've given him. And besides all that, you won't leave, you got a hedge of protection around him. I want to get my hands on him, but you won't let me. And he said, okay, go for it. I'll take the hedge of protection away. And so he did. And um, he says, you let me get my hands on him, and, and he'll curse you to your face. So the hedge of protection was taken away. And in one day, Job lost all his possessions. He had seven sons, three daughters. They were all killed. And the next day, um, they meet again the father and Lucifer and Jesus says Lucifer I let you ha- I let you had your whack at him and he still hasn't cursed me he says yeah but if you touch his flesh skin for skin I've studied he's saying I've studied humans satan said I've studied human beings and I found out one thing about them when their life is on the line, they'll cave. And he says, all right, you can do every, everything physically against him except take his life. And so he was struck from the top of his head to the bottom of his feet with boils. He was in such agony and pain that when his three buddies came to see him, they sat there for a full week and nobody could say a word because of the suffering that Job was going through. His wife took one look at him and said, Job, curse God and get it over with. And he said, shall we only receive good from the Lord? Shall we not allow the tests to happen? And the Bible says, uh, Job said, naked I came, naked I go, praise the Lord. And in all this, Job did not sin. Dwight, what's your point? 
Skin for skin. It seems that um, a man will capitulate if his life is on the line and he'll do anything to save his own skin. That's what Lucifer was saying. And this comes out here in the humanity of Christ as we pick it up in verse, we'll make it to 46 tonight. 36, then Jesus came to a place called Gethsemane and said to his disciples, sit here while I go and pray over there. And he took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, that'd be James and John, and he began to be sorrowful and deeply distressed. And he said to them, my soul is exceedingly sorrowful, even to death. Will you guys stay with me and watch with me? And he went a little farther and fell on his face and prayed, saying, oh, my father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Now, I want you to remember when James and John put their mom up to going up to Jesus and say, now, Lord, when you go into your kingdom, can I sit, can one of my sons sit on your right hand and the other one sit on your left hand? And what does the Lord say? He said, are they able to drink the cup that I'm gonna be drinking of? Are they gonna be able to be baptized with the same baptism I am? So when the Lord says here, is it possible, let this cup, he's referring to what is about to take place, that he knows all too well. That, and I can't put this into words, I can't, you know, just my own personal sins at one time being placed upon the Lord and then to multiply that times all the people that have ever lived and that reality and what pressure and weight, knowing that he's going to be separated from his father, it's all coming crashing in. And he says, I'm past the point right now that my soul is exceedingly sorrowful even to death. And he prays, oh father, if it's possible. In other words, if there's any other way for man to be restored, to have fellowship with you, then that's what I want. That's what I'm praying for right now. And that's the humanity coming out because of the immensity of of, uh, the sins of the world being placed upon him. But then he says, nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And, you know, this, this is where it gets down to the practical things of everyday life in walking with the Lord, having the Holy Spirit in us. Um, even people that aren't born again, they still have a conscience. You don't have to tell a person it's wrong to steal. They know it's wrong to steal. Um, you don't have to teach a baby um, to be obedient. What's the first word a baby learns? Somebody tell me, what's the first word a baby learns? No, <laughs> they're born little sinners. <laughs> and um, we, we came into this with a terminal disease called sin and there's no exceptions. And so the Lord is saying, if there's any other way for man's sin to be redeemed, then that's what I'm voting for. But nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. 
And then he came to his disciples and found them asleep and said to Peter, what, could you not watch with me for one hour? Watch and pray lest you enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, and here's the text for Sunday, but the flesh is weak. This is the same guy that said, Lord, I'm gonna die for you. But he couldn't even be with the Lord when the Lord was asking. This was the only time I can think of in the scriptures. I need you guys right now. I need you to pray with me and along with me. But they fell asleep. So he went again a second time and prayed saying, oh my father, if this cup cannot pass away from me unless I drink it, your will be done. And he came and found them asleep again with, because their eyes were heavy. And again, I think they wanted to be the Lord's right hand man. They wanted to encourage them. They wanted to build them up. Spirit is willing, flesh is weak. So he left them and went again, prayed a third time saying the same words. Then he came to his disciples and said to them, are you still sleeping and resting? Behold the hour, and here it is. When he said in John 2, my hour has not yet come, seven times in John Gospel, now he says it's here. The hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, he who betrays me is at hand. So I say to you right now, rise, rise (laughs) and let us be going but let's pray first (laughs) Lord as we have no idea of your heart being so sorrowful even to death where you ask the disciples to pray with them truly Lord we can identify we want to do what's right we want to do those things that please you we never want to deny you And yet, Lord, we have to admit, as it says, that the spirit indeed is willing, but our flesh is weak. And so, Lord, I I pray ahead of time for Sunday morning for a more in-depth look at this reality and this truth. But in the meantime, Lord, as we see that your hour has come, once again, we're reminded and we're grateful that you did go to the cross and um, you did rise again from the dead, and the victory is is yours, and we are the beneficiaries, Lord, because you did that for us. May we always be grateful, may we always remember, and um, we thank you for your word tonight as we get to the latter portions of Matthew's gospel. So Father, we pray for Sunday morning, we pray you go before us this evening, in Jesus' name we pray. All God's people said, amen.